Hi, I'm Issa Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hunt. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. It is Monday, June 5th. We're coming up on the halfway point to 2023. It's been a pretty weird one so far. If 2022 was the year Hollywood went crazy with the great Netflix correction, the upheaval at Disney, the Will Smith slap, this year so far has been in some ways about attempts at recovery. Everyone's canceling shows, greenlighting less, cutting costs, even taking content off streaming services to save money. You may have noticed that. Disney laid off 7,000 people, and all the studio conglomerates are shrinking. That was before the writers went on strike last month, with no end in sight although the Directors Guild made a deal this past weekend to avert a strike. After a period of decline, the stock prices of most of the entertainment companies are all up this year, slightly, all except Paramount Global. And for the first time since the pandemic, we've got a pretty steady march of big-budget movies at the box office this summer. But it's unclear whether there's enough interest from moviegoers to support them all. The best-reviewed movie of the year, according to Rotten Tomatoes, is Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, the adaptation of the Judy Bloom book, which, of course, flopped in theaters. In TV, other than that contraction, the big story is the financial model for regional sports networks, those channels that show local NBA games and such, is collapsing. Lots of gains and losses this year, some of them not so obvious. So I've got Lucas Shaw back today, and we're going to offer our stealth winners and losers so far of 2023. A couple you probably didn't expect. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Lucas Shaw from Bloomberg. Happy almost half of the year, Lucas. We're getting a little jump on this. Yeah, we're, we're, we're five months in. We can call it halfway. By, by December, the year's over anyway. We've all checked out. Come on. It's, it's basically half the year. It's now summer, so we're getting there. And you and I both love a list. So we have decided to pick our stealth winners and losers of the first half of 2023. It's been a, a very odd... 2023 so far hard to find hard to find a lot of winners i was gonna say a lot more (laughs) losers than winners but they are out there and i want to give you the first opportunity i'm going to do it we're gonna do two winners and two losers for each of us so you go first with your first winner of the first half of 2023 my first winner is peacock what the most derided streaming service of them all but they they started the year coming off a very strong December with their best man TV show and then had a hit show in Poker Face. And they regularly account for more viewing time on Nielsen than than Paramount Plus or Apple TV Plus and are comparable to HBO Max. And I feel like they've consistent... Initially, we thought it was the World Cup, but since then, they have sat at above 1% of TV viewing in the US. It is not a raging success, but for what... Yeah, what is it? 20-something million subscribers in the US? It's US only? It is U.S. only, but it's strong enough that, you know, I, I, I think it's they're in, they're in a much better position with it than they were a year ago. Okay. How much of that is sports 
that is coming from the NBC platform and the Bravo nonsense that is coming from their linear platforms. But why does that matter? That's the whole point, right? Is I, these I service, get it. I get it. These services I, I are know. supposed to offer. And the, 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 for me, the, the, the big question is to be they totally fucked up the Olympics last time. Mm-hmm. They, they have another Olympics, Summer Olympics next summer. Now, it's possible that they will have you know, bought Warner Brothers Discovery by then or merged with Paramount or whatever. But if they can continue to execute over the course of this year, that would be a chance to really help them a lot. Look, sports makes a big difference. It's it's one of the more popular things on Paramount Plus and a few of these platforms too. Comcast is supposed to lean into its different assets, be it Bravo or, or sports, to try to make this thing more relevant. The originals, though. They just haven't had. I mean, Poker Face, I guess, was a breakout. I mean, I've talked to people who just say, when you see the actual numbers on viewership on Peacock, they're, it's just tiny. It's just so impossible to have a breakout. I mean, nobody's talking about that Pete Davidson show, Bupkiss. And it's, there's like real people in that show. Yeah, but then you look at the total viewing and we can talk about, okay, HBO's got this breakout and that, that breakout. And yet people spend about as much time watching Peacock as they do HBO Max. I'm not going to disagree with you. I think the, the numbers from Nielsen are impressive given that the originals haven't really broken out. I think the movies from Universal also help Peacock. The fact that they're getting these things first. They had Minions and Megan and a lot of these big Universal movies are a distinguisher for Peacock. I would love to see the numbers come up on overall subscribers just so they can start to get some traction, some some scale. They still have a lot of work to do, but if they if that that service was basically, you know, dead man walking uh, <laughs> a year ago, it's it's now enough that they can say we're not going to merge with Hulu and nobody is is outraged. My first winner is going to be Bella Bajaria, the chief content officer of Netflix. Really? No, rea- why? no reaction, no, no reaction just, there? I, uh, <laughs> Let I me mean, make the wh- argument. Wh- why? Okay. She started the year getting promoted. She was running the television group. She got promoted to chief content officer above her film peer, Scott Stuber. And if you look at the offerings from Netflix, like they have had pretty good and consistent hits all year so far from Diplomat to Queen Charlotte to The Night Agent. And these are the kinds of shows that Bella likes, that she wants to do more of. They're very accessible. They are kind of soapy and international. You could do multiple seasons of them. And I think this is the new Netflix. It's kind of the, the elevated version of a broadcast network. Uh, if you look at the stock for Netflix, it started the year below 300, now above 400. And I think Netflix is the best positioned for the long strike that you and I both think is happening right now. So I think plus the ad tier seems to be kind of working and jury's out on that one. I just think that Netflix gets a lot of shit for some of the, you know, controversial about faces they've done and kind of, you know, the the havoc that they have wreaked on the Hollywood ecosystem. But from Netflix's perspective, I think it's kind of working. Yeah, I, look, I, I don't think there's any question that of all of the media and entertainment companies right now, or the kind of the, the traditional ones, you know, cutting out the YouTubes of the world, Netflix is the best positioned by far. I mean, they have the biggest audience. It's not really going anywhere. They have a huge advantage overseas. And to your point, 
in part because they have a loyal audience, but they just continue to deliver shows that that people watch, whether they are as critically appraised as as what's on HBO um, or as is in the kind of quote unquote zeitgeist to some other things. It doesn't really matter. You know, every two to three weeks, they put out something that a lot of people watch. And I think they will continue to during the strike because they've been preparing for a long time for this. And she's got all those gourmet cheeseburgers lined up on the conveyor belt. And I think that as much as people in Hollywood kind of thumb their noses at what Netflix, including you, you love you love to tease the gourmet cheeseburger. I do. But listen, people eat them. There's an obesity epidemic in this country and people are getting fat on the Netflix content. So I will give her some credit where where it's deserved. I also think to your point on that they're really well positioned for the strike. I would say, though, I think it's very I've I've always thought it was weird that people were that certain uh, both writers who are striking and news outlets have made it seem like Netflix was the only company preventing a deal that they want a strike, which is not true. I don't think. No, but I do think that Netflix, now that there is a strike, is communicating that they're okay with it. That they, they can go however long they need to go. And these legacy companies have the fall season. They have the late night shows. They don't have as much international. And Netflix is better positioned among these you know, high volume producers to stay the course. Well, this, th- that just sort of provides a natural segue to my first loser. Oh, all right. Lucas, give me your first loser. Sir Bob Iger is my Wow, how dare you? How dare you take a shot at Mr. Hollywood? You know, everything that's happened this year has looked bad for him, looked bad for (laughs) Disney. He's firing people. He's yanking shows off like Zaslav. You know, the, the one thing that he sort of has nailed is his fight with Ron DeSantis and his fight with the activists. I will say from a corporate perspective, he's done very well. But Disney just looks weak right now. Their streaming service is not doing very well. Their movies aren't doing that well. They don't seem to, they, they uncharacteristically seem to be very reactive instead of sort of leading the industry. And this is why it just was always so strange to me that he chose to come back because this guy had the perfect resume. He'd been the best CEO in, that Hollywood had seen in years. Pretty much every deal with a couple of exceptions he'd done, he'd done right. The one thing that he didn't do right was pick a successor. And rather than, you know, let his failed successor muddle through it and have the board find someone else, he comes back and thinks that he's going to be the one to solve it all. And look, it's too soon to give him, you know, a failing grade on his report card. But this has definitely been a blemish for him. And I don't see it getting better in the near future. No, it's funny. People are starting to even reassess the old deals. It's like, really, was was Iger that great in the past? Because if you look at a lot of the problems that Disney's having here, they're decisions that Iger made. I mean, people are questioning the Fox acquisition. People are questioning going all in on Disney Plus and putting in motion the, you know, three Star Wars series a year and you know three Marvel series a year that has sort of gotten them into this problem. Now, Bob Chapek didn't do anything to change that, but all these decisions were made before Iger left at the end of 2021. So it's not great when not only does he face current problems, he faces a reassessment of the old decisions that he made. And I, the movie stuff is the stuff that's most interesting to me because, as you said, Disney for almost a decade now has been considered this juggernaut. 
where I remember looking up at CinemaCon one year, the theater convention, Disney flashed its release calendar for the next like five years. And there was like an audible gasp. People were just like, Jesus Christ, how are we supposed to compete with that? It was Star Wars movie after Frozen 2, after, you know, Aladdin and Beauty and the Beast and just all of these movies that were as close to guaranteed blockbusters as you can get in the movie business. And now if you look at the different silos, that Disney has, they're kind of all in a weakened position now. Pixar, we don't even know if this new Pixar movie, Elemental, is going to be profitable. Cost $200 million. It's looking at like a 40-something million opening weekend. And query whether Bob Chapek putting those movies on Disney Plus during the pandemic has conditioned people to think that they should be online and not in theaters. You know, at the same time, Sony and Universal have had huge hits in animation. If you look at what The Little Mermaid is doing, that is something that you know other studios stayed away from because they said, oh, great, another Disney live-action remake of an animated movie. It's going to do a billion dollars. This one's not going to do a billion dollars. Probably will struggle to get to five or six hundred million. And that's not what they expected. Uh, Disney Animation had a huge bomb with Strange World. And I saw that movie. It is such a misfire of what a Disney movie should be. And I, I just I don't understand can't understand that movie. Uh, even Searchlight, you know, if even, Searchlight, well, you, don't, you haven't you have, we haven't even talked about Marvel, which for years, anytime someone talked about superhero fatigue, I was like, ah, that's bullshit. Like these movies are still doing fine. They're big. But I think now there's been enough enough sort of I realize Guardians did well and we'll see what happens. It did with, well, but it's going to be the lowest grossing early summer Marvel release in a decade. Yeah, they've had a number of stumbles in a row, and I'm, I'm, you, you have to wonder if, for the first time, there are a, there's a little bit of concern about what the future of that franchise is. Yeah, and I was going to say, even Searchlight, which I think has been the kind of art house darling of of the business, that has been usurped by A twenty four, and they do okay. They have you know they have their output, but I think there's questions about what is a Searchlight movie now that you know the whole idea of making movies just for streaming is going away because that was going to be the plan is that Searchlight would put some of their movies in theaters and the others would go directly to Hulu. But if they're not going to make original movies for Hulu anymore, make fewer of them, then where does that leave Searchlight? So there's a lot of questions. And then what is the Fox studio other than Avatar? I mean, they had a movie this past weekend, The Boogeyman, that did okay for a horror movie. But does Disney want to be in that business of you know doing the low-budget horror movies? Maybe, maybe not. So there's a question about what, where Fox stands there. Iger has a lot of problems, not a lot of obvious solutions this time. Once again, even though I, I, I think it's probably off and this is maybe not the best way to compare it, but Netflix is now more valuable than Disney. And I don't, I don't think that's going to change this year. It happened, I think, late like 21 or something when Netflix is, was like on a tear and they were worth more than two something. Um, but now Netflix is at around 180 and Disney's 160 something. All right, I'm going to do a fun one for my first loser. Not fun. Not fun for him or his representatives. But I'm going to say Adam Driver is a big Ooh. loser of 2023. Everyone's favorite movie star. I know, I know. I just, most movies, I understand. Even if they flop, I get the rationale. I understand what they were trying to do. I understand why the actors did it, whether it's for financial reasons or for artistic reasons. I cannot understand this movie, 65, that came out in March, cost uh, almost $100 million to make, 
grossed 32 million domestic, 60 worldwide, big money loser. It is a time travel dinosaur movie starring America's favorite Oscar nominee, Adam Driver. Can I disclose something to you? You saw it. I have no idea what that movie is. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I'll send you the trailer. It's quite something. It is a, I mean, I, I guess that's kind of a spoiler. There's time travel dinosaurs, but it doesn't, it's like a cheapo dinosaur movie. It's a mid-budget dinosaur movie. Like, if you're going to do that, you've got to go all in and make it a real, like, Jurassic World-style dinosaur movie. I don't understand why he did this movie. I know he made, like, six, seven million dollars. Good for him. But Adam Driver is Star Wars Adam Driver. He can get a franchise if he wants a franchise. There's whole rumors right now that he's going to be Mr. Fantastic in Fantastic Four. Like, good for him. That at least makes sense as a franchise play. This made no sense to me. It felt like one of those geezer teaser movies that you see marketed at the Cannes Film Festival with like, you know, Bruce Willis or Arnold Schwarzenegger, not Adam Driver. So I, I, I hear you. The fact that I'd never even heard of this big budget Adam Driver movie is probably not a great sign for him. But does a, does a flop like that cause that much damage to him, right? Do you think that it will prevent him from getting the next big job? Do you think that Adam Driver fans think less of him because it exists if they even know it exists? Probably not in the grand scheme of things. The only way it might impact him is on his foreign or his you know blockbuster uh, Q score, whether he's the kind of person that can open anything. Or, sure, he, do he doesn't get he doesn't get cast in Fantastic Four because... No, no, no. He, no, he they cast him in Fantastic Four because they don't need Adam Driver to open Fantastic Four. Yeah. He is a name and people like him, but it's not like they're going to sell that movie on Adam Driver's name. Uh, they are selling it on Fantastic Four and Marvel. So, But it might prevent him from getting the kind of movie that does need Adam Driver to open it. And there was a time after Star Wars where I feel like people felt that he was the next generation of Thinking Man's action star and that he could open movies. And this thing, I know it was a complete turd, but he did not open it. Yeah. All right. So give me your next winner. In keeping with my need to promote all things Latin music on this podcast. Oh, no. If it's Bad Bunny, stop right no, here. No, Peso Pluma. Okay. Oh, all right. All right. Give us the argument. 23-year-old Mexican singer. My colleague Ashley Carmen wrote a piece about him last week. He is the biggest musician on both YouTube and Spotify right now. He has dethroned Bad Bunny as the biggest Latin music act in the world, at least temporarily, mm. and is part of, whereas Bad Bunny is from Puerto Rico, and most of the biggest stars in Latin music for the last decade plus have been either from, or really more than that, from either Puerto Rico or Colombia. Peso Pluma is from Mexico. And there is a huge vanguard of Mexican music coming into sort of the broader cultural consciousness right now, whether that's Grupo Frontera, which has done a collaboration with Bad Bunny. There's all this Mexican regional music that's super popular. And to me, it speaks to just the growing power of Latin music, globalized culture, all these things. And I feel like this is going to be a name that a lot of people are talking about in the next six months to a year. Touring as well or just recorded right now? Just recorded, but if you want to look, I mean, if you wanted to do like Latin music as a more broadly, like Carol G, who's also huge, she's about to go on a on a, a I forget if it's an arena or stadium tour in the U.S., but she can sell. She can, much as Bad Bunny has already sold out all over the U.S., Carol G is about to sell out all over the U.S. Shakira's had a huge year and can sell it anywhere in the U.S. So yeah, 
All right. Well, I have almost zero to add on that subject, <laughs> so uh, I'm going to trust you. And uh, other than Rosalia, I don't I don't interact with a lot of Latin music, but I know it's gigantic. I apologize. I know you're a fan. Have you seen Peso Pluma live? He came out during someone said at Coachella. I missed it. I did see Rosalia there and I did see Bad Bunny there. OK. All right. Well, we will you will be able to do a victory lap if uh, we're at the Grammys next year and Peso Pluma is uh, on stage. All right. My next winner second winner is another executive, uh, Donna Langley at Universal Pictures. Donna runs the film group at Universal. And, you know, they, they haven't all you, been... Go ahead. You said we couldn't do Chris Melodondri for Super Mario Brothers. And then you do the head of the studio that releases Yeah, because that's Super more Mario interesting Brothers. to me. That's more interesting <laughs> because it's more than just Mario. So, listen, these jobs at movie studios are all about franchise creation. We have done shows on this show about how there are not that many new franchises. Most of the franchises out there are either steady or in decline. And Donna has actually created two new franchises this year. One, obviously, with Super Mario Brothers, and that owes a lot to Chris Melodondri and the, and the Illumination team there, as well as the Nintendo IP. They split that franchise with Nintendo. But you got to Think they made a lot of smart decisions on Super Mario Brothers, even putting it out in April before the summer movie crunch and, you know, getting Illumination involved in the first place. And the fact that, you know, the movie was not critically well received, but was extremely accessible and had all of the Easter eggs in it that every fan of the game wanted to see. The fact that that movie is now at 1.3 billion is a major franchise creation. We're going to see Mario and other Nintendo movies for decades now. So that's one. And then they, she created another one with Megan, the horror kind of comedy movie from Blumhouse that grossed almost 200 million worldwide. Not gigantic, but they've already announced a sequel and they will probably do three or four Megan movies. So six months of the year, two new franchises. Not bad. She is the the reigning queen uh, or leader, I'd say, of the of Hollywood from a movie perspective. There's no other movie studio with more stability and no other leader who's got more respect in, in town, I'd say, than Donna. They've had a really good run, both creating new franchises, as you say, but also being willing to take those like singles and doubles and smaller wins and having exactly. a more diverse slate. Cocaine Bear, not huge, but a hit. You know, Fast X, like... That's that, the shaky one. Do you yeah. assume that they're bringing The Rock back because they, that they know that's what the franchise needs? No, I think The Rock needs it. I think The Rock looked at his slate and was like, oh, God, Black Adam didn't work. The Disney movie uh, Jungle Cruise didn't really work. He wants back in. I think that's the reason. And they're happy to have him. Yeah. They also had Renfield, which was a, a bomb and did not relaunch the Monsters franchise. They had Knock at the Cabin, which was the Night Shyamalan movie that eh, didn't really work. And they lost him to Warner Brothers. I don't think they were that sad to see him go. But I'm looking at the future, and if you can create franchises, you will stay in your job. And right. she has done it. All right, let's move on to another loser. Go for it. So you did the smart thing, and you made name two executives winners, so they would come and talk to you more. And I did the stupid. <laughs> I did this. I did oh, you the, know me well enough to know that I do not care about that. I did the stupid thing where I named two executives as losers. So my second loser is Jennifer Salkin. Oh, you know what? I'm going to agree with you there. So continue. Make make the argument. <laughs> Uh, so for those that don't know, Jen Salky runs Amazon Studios. She was had previously been at NBC. She got this big job, beat out a bunch of other executives for it. She has now been there for 
I forget if it's five or six years. And Amazon has produced very few popular shows under her leadership. And they just released one of their most expensive projects to date, Citadel, a month and a half ago. If you haven't heard of it, don't blame yourself. Nobody's watching it. I haven't seen it in oh, any of the time. I'm going to correct you. It's huge in India. We've okay, seen the data. I take it back because of, <laughs> of Priyanka Chopra. It is huge in India. And I'm sure that there are viewers for it. Look, they had that show that I'm, I probably shouldn't mention because I can't remember the name, but they've had shows that get no critical buzz. And because Amazon's audience is different from an HBO or even from a Netflix, it's more sort of mainstream. I get yeah, it. Yeah, they've had several of those. Jack Ryan does well, Bosch. The, the, they the have Chris the Pratt Termin show. Yeah, Terminal yeah. List. That, they do those like kind of bread and butter, CBS style, you know, but with violence shows pretty well. But her big swings for the most part have not been that big. Their rate of hits is way worse than Netflix. They've been doing it for just about as long. She was given ownership over the film business for unclear reasons, even though she doesn't have a lot of experience there. I mean, I guess same as Bella Bajaria, but there were a lot of high-profile film people like a Scott Stuber who's at Netflix who wanted to come in at Amazon, including maybe Scott Stuber, and they didn't do it in part because they didn't want to report to Jen Salky. And she just spent a bunch of money on these big overall deals, as your former colleague Kim Masters wrote about, that produced bupkis so she she's well liked by the and we don't mean at bupkis the show we mean we don't bupkis, mean bupkis the show she's well liked <laughs> by leadership at, the, at amazon i she's well liked within the town and i do think that she has produced certain popular shows but the she's she's given sort of free reign there and continues to add her empire even though i don't see a track record to warrant it air was pretty good the ben affleck movie but again they bought that movie for 130 million dollars and that movie did not cost $130 million and questioning what the business model is for a purchase like that, even though it did okay in theaters. So yeah, no, I, Amazon is a tough company. To go there, you have to be willing to work within that weird Seattle culture. And, you know, she's willing to do it. She can play the game. Her and Mike Hopkins have had a, you know, what is it, two, three reorgs since she took over. And there's likely another one coming. So uh, it's just... Uh, it's a tough corporate situation. And, you know, Amazon is is not in the business generally of movies. They are in the business of selling you stuff. So it's always a question as to how much any of this matters overall to the bottom line at Amazon or whether it's just kind of Jeff Bezos's pet project. But even his pet project, Lord of the Rings, didn't totally work. That's one that makes it hard to to punish them too much as it doesn't feel like it really matters. But yeah, Lord of the Rings, for all, even though Amazon will tell you it was, you know, it was very successful. It sure didn't feel like it. And and the viewer it was basic it wasn't even a bigger hit for them than The Boys, which is right. which is their biggest hit. Which I do watch. I like that show. It's great. All right. I'm gonna have a controversial one here for my loser. It's it's a stealth loser because many might say that this company is on top of the world. But if you look at the numbers for 2023 only, I'm gonna say A twenty four is you, a you just stealth said they were loser. great. No, I said that they had replaced Searchlight as the kind of buzzy studio that everyone wants to work with. But look at the numbers for this year. I'm taking everything everywhere out of this because the box office for that was last year, even though they swept the Oscars and became the toast of the town. Bo is Afraid cost $35 million, their most expensive movie they've ever made, grossed $7 million domestic. Huge flop. They had a bunch of quiet movies that kind of came and went. This movie, When You Finish Saving the World, a Jesse Eisenberg 
directed a, a movie called Close, which was a can movie that did a million dollars domestic. They had Sharper, a Julianne Moore movie that was mostly for Apple. Uh, they had a movie called Showing Up with Michelle Williams. Do you have you heard of any of these movies? I've heard of Sharper because I've heard good things about it. I will. So I question the pick because this company did just win the best picture for the second time yes. in six and years. And they have and a had... $2.5 billion valuation based on a investment they got last year. But the points that you make are one of, I've always been frustrated by media coverage of A24 because they people glom on to the one or two big hits that they have and ignore the fact that most of the movies they release don't get watched. And they're just really good at branding and like Harvey and some other people are very good at touting their wins and hiding their losses. Yes, and they sell $50 candles on their website. So people think that they are a premium luxury brand. Uh, although Craig has one of those candles. He, he likes to smell. I have 12 of them. Oh, oh, right. There you go. Also, The Idol. They produced The Idol, the weekend show that uh, debuted on HBO this past weekend to some of the worst reviews ever for an HBO original. So my alternate stealth loser, which I didn't do, but but we just teased here, was was Sam Levinson, who is the creator of The Idol and the creator of Euphoria. And I sort of appreciate that the negative coverage of The Idol has finally kind of gotten him in some trouble because I have some real problems with Euphoria or I've <laughs> developed them. And I feel like The Idol is more of the same. You know, the thing about The Idol, though, is that it'll probably be a, a big hit. Euphoria is a big hit. You know, celebrities having sex is always going to be popular on cable or streaming. So I, I don't want to say the idol is a failure. But if you are a 24 and you're positioning yourself as the purveyor of quality content, a 25 percent score on Rotten Tomatoes is not what you want. Not great. All right, Craig, do any of those surprise you? Adam Driver felt like a drive-by, and I'm not sure he deserved that. <laughs> there are plenty of movie actors out there making bombs and you singling out Adam Driver. I, I just, I don't understand it. And yes, I know he could kick my ass in about 10 seconds, but I just don't understand that one. And I had to call it out. I'm sorry. Uh, Adam, no, nothing personal, although I guess it is personal. All right, we're back with the call sheet. Greg, I asked Lucas to stay on to talk about the story of the week in media. And I feel like it's almost been drawn to death over the Chris Licht saga at CNN. Mm -hmm. But I think Lucas and I differ on what's going to happen here. If you haven't been following, Chris Licht, the CEO of CNN, has been a controversial figure. He, <laughs> the ratings are in the toilet. He's trying to make it more conservative or at least have you know, not be perceived as an advocacy network for anti-Trump stuff. And he's run into a lot of problems. He did this Atlantic profile that came out this past week that was a complete disaster. So a lot of people think that Chris Licht is out. Yeah, right. But you guys have dueling predictions here. Yeah. So, Lucas, what do you think? I tend to be the contrarian and wanting to say that he's not. Wait, what? Hold, hold on. L let me finish. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but his position start is starting to feel untenable. And Brian Stelter, who has a little bit of an axe to grind, but used to be at CNN and published a story where he quoted some people there who feel like he's done. And, you know, David Zaslav does not like getting a lot of negative press. And Licht and CNN have been nothing but bad press for him since he took over. And so I feel like if you're him, you, you got to start looking at alternatives. Oh, so you think he is out? He's, he's on real thin ice. I, I'm not sure I'm ready to say he's out. I could see a replacement before. I think you got to do it in the next like three months. 
because you need to have a leader in place for the election next year. And if you're Zaz and you're tired of it, even if he's your friend and even if, you know, you've, you don't want to admit defeat, you might have to clean the house. So I'm actually the opposite on this one. I actually don't think Chris Licht will be fired. And um, just disclosure, he and I are friendly. Like we've, you know, gone back many years and talked every once in a while, but that's not coloring my opinion here. I don't think he's going to be fired because I think Zasloff doesn't want to have that weakness on his resume. This was his guy. He picked this guy without interviewing anyone else. He has empowered him. He's told him what to do in many instances here. And I think firing him would be a big black mark on the Zasloff legacy at Warner Discovery. That's the first thing. Second is what you said. If they're going to do it, they got to do it now because the election is coming up and you got to have someone in place and making sure everything is going. Third, they just brought in this new guy, David Levy, to run the business side of CNN, taking a lot of that off Chris Lick's plate. And I think they're going to give that a little bit of time to see if it works and to see if, you know, just focusing on the creative aspects of CNN, the journalism, could make a difference here. And I just feel like the overall knee-jerk reaction is not typically what Zasloff does. I think he will likely give this a chance. Levy is Zaz's guy, right? Like, yep. he's been his right hand for a long time. I took that as a really bad sign for Chris Licht. If he's having to put someone else in there to basically supervise you, even even though Chris will now technically be his boss, that's not what the dynamic I feel like is going to be because Levy's Zaz's guy. So I, I don't know. You're, you could be right that they use that to try to stabilize things. And if even if it doesn't after three to six months, then you're too close to the election and they can't. But you're putting someone else in there like Levy's going to uncover all the negative things that people have had to say about Licks, some of which I think has been totally unfair because you have all these folks who just loved Zucker. And so they were going to hate any change. But I, I don't think it's going to take Levy long to realize that Licht does not have a lot of fans in the newsroom at CNN. Does Levy share Lick's kind of viewpoint and, and desire to kind of shift CNN back towards the middle? It's not their viewpoint. It's Zasloff's viewpoint. So, yes, they both do. Yeah. They, are, they, are, <laughs> they are doing what their boss wants them to do. And that's going to continue. So we'll see if it works. And what, and what one of their boss's big shareholders wants them to do. Yes, John Malone wants that as well. Um, the other thing here is that, you know, most of us believe that Warner Discovery will be sold or combined or merged or something within a year or two. And that's likely going to mean either a new owner for CNN or a spinoff or something where they're going to probably replace Chris Licht then anyways. So, you know, why do it now? The thinking might be if in a year we're going to sell the asset and someone's going to bring in their own person then, then anyways. Yeah. We will see. All right, Lucas. Thanks very much. Thanks, Matt. All right, that's the show. I want to thank my guest, Lucas Shaw from Bloomberg. I want to thank producer Craig Holbrecht and our editor, Jesse Lopez. See you guys later this week.